welcome to Macintosh Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched The Umbrellas of Scharberg. A young woman separated from her lover by war faces a life-altering decision. It's an unusual musical film. It's a French New Wave musical. Yes, so it's a Frenchy subtitle film. I think we're going to need a guest to talk about this one. Yes, we most definitely need a guest. Oh, well then, who is our guest, Diana? Our guest is the wonderful TTRPG storyteller, Twitch content creator. It is the one, the only, the Lady Dame. Oh, hello. Bonjour. What one might say, actually. (laughs) I only took six years of French class. It's fine. I remember it. Sure. I feel like I'm introducing like Bette Midler. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I should work on that Bette Midler impression. It's, it's very, I feel like I was like, I'm very, I'm introducing a diva. <laughs> I mean, I am. Let's be real. I am. I am a Leo rising. So I do ah. exude big diva energy. Or perhaps our own podcast version of Catherine Deneuve. Catherine Deneuve. See how oh. I tied that together? See how I tied that together? I appreciate it. I know. Right? I love her. This movie. This movie. So full disclosure, my history with, I'll just jump in with my little history with this one. I took, again, took French for six years throughout high school. Of course, being in French class and having to expose us to French culture, this movie was definitely one of those. I don't think I've seen it since. So it's been like 20 years since I've seen this movie. But man, there are things that I, sh- I listened to it and it was like, oh yeah, I remember this song. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's how this one goes. This is a this is a real bizarre watch. It is. It is. Now, what's interesting to me is like full full disclosure on my end. I was a French New Wave dork for a time. I was a Criterion dork for a point in high school and stuff. I never got around to this movie. It was always on the list and just mm-hmm. never got to it. Mm-hmm. But I saw a lot of the early Godard and really got into Truffaut. I thought Truffaut was always a little bit better because Truffaut could tell a better story than Godard could. Although there's some I mean, Godard has great moments where you're just like, what the fuck? You can do that? <laughs> That's what yeah. Jean-Luc Godard did so amazingly well. And so this this was always a movie on the list, but I just never saw. What's hard about this movie is that it was made with a specific purpose and point in mind. And yet, we're so used, especially in this series, to watching straight up movie musicals mm-hmm. that you are not prepared for what this is. No. At all. <laughs> no. It's it has almost inventions of a traditional music, especially a, mu- a traditional movie musical like at all. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it, as a as a huge movie musical buff as well like was that kid who watched Turner Classic Movies and also like started musicals by watching the Rodgers and Hammerstein classic films and things like that. Like this is a it's a weird one. It's <laughs> it's like a play that with music and it's it's like almost an operetta because it's sung through, but it's not even really an operetta because you don't get these like huge, big soaring musical numbers. It's all sort the of production value of yeah. a musical. Mm-hmm. Not, not to say like this is cheap, but it's so no. different. Mm hmm. I think coming into this movie, if because for me, I, I was coming in fresh other than knowing like, oh, somebody in the French New Wave made a musical. It's supposed to be really colorful and a lot of people really love it. It's very mm-hmm. colorful. That's all I had to mm-hmm. go on. 
seeing it now, not having any context, I feel like you wind up in two camps. Either you watch this and you go, well, this is weird. I don't know. And then just kind of move on with your life. Or you watch this and go, I'm going to have to watch this a few more times. (laughs) And I think I'm falling in that latter camp of like, I was so unprepared for what I was about to watch that I feel like I need to give it a few more a few more tries to really soak in what they're trying to do. Yeah. So I also took about six years of French in high school. <laughs> but we never watched this. Really? Which I'm shocked that we never watched this. I remember hearing about it, but never, never saw. Sure. My only connotation with this, other than the poster, is the reference to it in Mad Men. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah, that's valid. That's all I have. And of you know, of course, I've practically memorized Mad Men. So I'm just like, yeah, uh-huh. I, get it. I like it. I like now it. Get, good uh-huh. reference. Good reference. It's very good. It is the most 60s too. like of it's like such a French 60s. Like so... it's so iconically what it is. And and now having seen it, I'm I'm so glad they they pulled this reference and it, it makes total sense. I love it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love. I love it because the word for umbrella, parapluie, I remember learning that word in French class and we all loved it. It's like that, like pamplemousse. It's such a Pamplemousse is the other one. It's the other one. Pamplemousse and parapluie. (laughs) We loved to say those words. Like I remember in junior high, like we were just little word dorks. Just like, I just want to say these words over and again because they just sound fun. Yeah. So that that was my whole context for this film. But I think not having context to it and coming to it without that made me really just enjoy it and just Mm -hmm. kind of, okay, this is what we're going to get. All right. And just kind of accept it. And I I like that. I think if I had had all the context for it, like, oh, it's going to be a sung through movie from the 60s. I'd be like, oh, damn, I don't want to watch that. (laughs) I I probably would have been like, no, thanks. Super, super valid. I I remember because I when I was going through friends class, I was also in my like big, super, you know, high school musical theater dork Mm -hmm. phase. Not that I have ever grown out of either of them, but here we are. But, you know, obviously. And I remember watching it and the first time going, I have no idea what the fuck this is. And this is not like the music. This is not a musical that I understand. Mm-hmm. And like, it's French and like, it's colorful. It look, it's got that like candy quali- mm-hmm. color palette to it that it's just like, oh yeah, that looks like a musical, but none of the rest of it feels like anything I've ever seen before. Yeah. And then I think I watched it again, probably like that was, I don't know, that might've been like my third year French that I watched. I honestly, I feel like my um, instructor had us watch it every year at one point because I was, once I hit like French four, I was really just like doing independent study with the rest of the French three. So I ended up watching it every year. And every year I like sort of like grew in appreciation for it. And then having to watch it again. And I'm so glad that like I got that you asked, asked me to do this episode because I, having seen it again for the first time in 20 years, it's like, I get it like in a way that I obviously didn't when I was in high school like in a way that I was like oh I think I'm cool enough to get it in high school by like the third watch through of it but like now that I've like had it seeped and I haven't thought about it in a long time and like seen all of the different things I'm like no this is cool it's still weird it's still like not a musical but like I I get it and there's something really interesting and and cool about it really yeah 
there's something really thoughtful about it. It took me reading some actual like hard film criticism of this mm-hmm. to get across what was what the team making this was really thinking about while they were mm-hmm. doing it. And and whether that's, you know, the the debate then is how successful is that? Mm-hmm. What's what's frustrating too is there's not a whole lot of trivia about this movie. Now granted, it's a French New Wave small budget film, so there wouldn't be. Like they would have just pushed through this, filmed it all. They dubbed over all the singers with actual singers Mm because nobody that was in this movie was an actual singer and wasn't going to be able to just sing the whole film through. Mm -hmm. Which admittedly, I just realized, I only just found that out that they had dubbed all the singers, which I think is a weird choice for a sung through musical. Also, especially given that like, some of those vocalists aren't that great but <laughs> i agree like it's like mm, that doesn't feel very support but it also like maybe maybe it was intentional because they sort of sounded more natural and more like what you would expect those actors to sound like but also Catherine Deneuve does actually sing i know um, that well and here's the thing they were intentionally breaking a crap ton of rules yeah so many that's what the new wave was about what's interesting is that when you think French New Wave, you think like this super obvious visual breaking of rules. You think about um, Jean-Luc Godard, and I, I always think about Band of Outsiders. I think mm-hmm. of the moment where they're sitting there at a table in a cafe, and they said, what would it be like to have a moment of silence? And the entire soundtrack cuts. You hear nothing. Amazing. And it's it's stuff like that where they went, fuck it, we're going to break every rule, every single one. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this movie is that it's doing it in a very subtle way. Sure. They, they're very intentional about it. So I found this really great article here that, that talks about it. The biggest thing that they're doing is that by singing through the whole musical and singing through things like ordering drinks, mm-hmm. bringing in a package... They're undercutting the trapping of the typical movie musical. Yeah, big time. You have no grand numbers because even the grandest numbers in this film, in fact, the the heaviest, biggest number in this film is at the very end of the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's also sad. Mm -hmm. It's really sad. But you're undercutting those big moments. Exactly. By in the middle of them having dialogue. You know, they talk about you've got auto mechanics and you're in a city and they're living real lives. Right. Mm-hmm. These are like the most ordinary people. And they are, you know, you get that throughout the whole story from beginning to middle. And 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 it's such, I think, one of the biggest departures from movie musicals, period, is that you've got like you have an auto mechanic and a shop girl who lives with her mom and you have this young love story. And throughout it, like it's not like this big epic romance. And it's not like that, you know, sweeping track. I mean, there is, but it is a very young love in Mm -hmm. a way. Mm -hmm. But it's not the Romeo and Juliet ending. It's not like there's no like, and there's no coming back together. It's just like, we made this choice when we were young and we've grown. And at some point we had to make other choices that have affected each other. And we've had to grow apart from each other. And instead of it like ruining our lives, it actually is fine. God damn it. You know what they did? Uh. They got the actual point of an American in Paris right. Yeah. 
we talked about this with an American in Paris, that that's the story that's going on between those two. And it's very Mm -hmm. obvious with our leads, the Gene Kelly character and the um, Leslie Caron character are both people who are in love, but are torn apart by the fact that they are financially secure with other people. Yeah. This story is on a much simpler scale, but it's doing that thing. And this movie went, huh, they didn't actually think about that. We're going to fucking do it. Mm-hmm. This is a much more modern story. It is. Yes. It's very modern. No one's life is ruined. No. And no one's life is tragic either. No. It's just, huh, this is sad that we can't be together for ultimately dumb reasons, like mm-hmm. societally dumb reasons. Sure. But that's just how it worked out. And there's like a quiet sort of, it's like a quiet sort of sadness, a quiet sort of tragedy sure. that like, it's like, oh, and but it's that, it's that thing where like, I'm, I'm not going to throw away what I have now no. because I loved you five years ago. Exactly. It's like when you see your high school sweetheart again after 10, after five or six years and you're like, oh, I really loved you. And like it, nothing bad happened. We just moved on because we went away to college or whatever. And we found other people. It's maturity. Yeah. Which, you know what? A lot of people don't like to watch because that's not fun. People yeah. making mature, responsible decisions in their life is not dramatically entertaining. No. And then they set it all to music. Yeah. The most like mundane, the most mundane ending possible and we've set it to music to beautiful music but that's what makes it so beautiful is that they acknowledge that we love each other and what we could have had but that we also have a we both separately have beautiful lives on our own yeah and then there's also the poetic tragedy that they each named their child Francois which is you knew it was going to happen. You just knew it was going to happen. You saw it come from my way. But you're just like, I don't care. They make every obvious choice and then twist it. Yep. That's what they do. It's earned. It was all earned. They take every obvious trip and then just turn it about 45 degrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the subtlety in it is what makes it so rich and interesting. Sure. It's so off-putting when you first see it because you're so used to the trope. Right. And I sure. think that's why I like didn't respond well to it in high school because yeah, I was absolutely. also 17 and I was like, where's the drama? Right? Where's the, like the dramatic like upset? Oh, I love him. Oh, is he going to re- remember me when he comes back from the war? Like like all of that drama I was into. And then with the ending, I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like yeah, high school me is like, what are, what's, I don't it, like, where's the drama? Where's the agony? And it's like, not there. What was, I was just thinking though too. And like, you look at both of the other partners that they end up with, with Madeline and Roland. Mm-hmm. Yes. Neither of them are bad people. They're both like really lovely, very sweet. Actually, Madeline has like one of the like most stable people and like a really good head on her shoulders because mm-hmm. there are a few when he is off doing his like comes back and is spiraling, which for real is a thing. Yeah. He went to fucking war. Like yeah. like you expect it. And like his whole life is changed and it's weird. And it, he wanted it. Yeah. Like she's like very supportive, but also like not even though you could tell that she was clearly in love with him at the beginning is mm-hmm. like, nah, dude, like you're going through some stuff and I don't want to be with that right now. Yeah. Like this cannot be like a spur of the moment, impulsive decision friend. 
But Roland was also like, he's not like this older, like lecherous gentleman. He's older than Genevieve, but everybody's yeah. older than Genevieve, really. Mm -hmm. And like, he's a handsome, sweet, caring dude. And you're just like, oh, you're nice. And also really good looking. So like, I mean, I oh, feel like, feel like it's Genevieve is not having a hard time there. No. I love this quote as part of this article. During an interview about umbrellas, Demi was asked why he would have people singing for no reason. Did he see, quote, people singing, I'd like the apple pie in the restaurant, unquote? Demi responded, why not? It would make life more pleasant. <laughs> it would. Perfect. Fucking per. And what, yeah. what that tells me, all of this tells me, is that he and Michel Legrand knew exactly what they were intending to do here. Mm -hmm. That's what you get from this movie more than anything else mm -hmm. is that the people who made this understood exactly what they were doing, thought through every part of this and went through and carefully put it together. That's what's so fascinating. It seems so effortless and floaty, but it's not <laughs> it's... like you can tell how much care was put into mm -hmm. that story. So that they could pull this all together. And I think that's what's so fascinating. And why it's, we talk about it a little bit in the trivia for some specific people, but this is one of those movies that people who make movies adore mm -hmm. because of how much craft is put into it. Sure. I mean, even down to like the film that they used, but also the masters that they did knowing that the film was going to, I don't know if we're getting into that later. Or we are. Like, we definitely perfect. are. Great. Yeah. Like that, <laughs> that kind of like thought ahead is I think right in that, mm -hmm. what you were talking mm -hmm. about and just how much care and craft is put into this entire film. It's, it's fascinating. And I think that's why, that's why for me, I sit here and I go, I'm going to have to watch this a few more times mm -hmm. because then I'm going to pick up on all of that yeah. the more I see yeah. it. It's quiet and subtle. Well, the budget for this film, we don't know the full budget. I can tell you for sure, knowing about different um, French New Wave films, they were small budgets, tiny budgets. We actually got into this when we talked about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. When Francois Truffaut was working on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, they went to a hotel room that had just all this level of detail and Spielberg was showing it. And Truffaut was like, I could make an entire movie out of just this room. Like <laughs> Truffaut was amazed and interested and like, like this is so cool. This is weird and different. But he also was just like, I don't need any of this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we never had this to work with. No. We do know that the global gross total was $140,000 <laughs> in 1964. However, it showed in one theater in America. Hmm. So if you factor in a per screen type thing, this movie really did make an impact when it got here. Honestly, that's pretty good. Yeah. And since then, it's also, I mean, with every remaster, they've done screenings of it. You, If you look in indie theaters in your area, if you're in a bigger city, this movie will come up in the repertory. They will mm -hmm. show it on a big screen. I mean, we're talking about it. It was referenced in Mad Men, one mm -hmm. of the biggest television shows ever. Mm -hmm. Clearly, it matters. <laughs> yeah. It did okay. It did okay. It also happens to be the favorite film of one Damien Chazelle. Barf. Who made La La Land. Barf, barf, barf. Oh, oh, yeah, I saw that. And... Michelle Legrand, to counter that, is one of Justin Hurwitz's favorite composers. Justin Hurwitz composed 
the score and a lot of the music for La La Land. Allowed. Yes. Okay. I like the music of La La Land. I do not like La La Land. No. Fair enough. It's not a good movie. I, I was like, this looks like something that I people will be like, but you should enjoy it. You're a musical theater nerd. And then subsequently. I no, hate I hate it because. Right, exactly. <laughs> you talk because to musical I... theater nerds. They're all like, uh, no. Nah, though. There's a few I know who do love it. Like, that's fair. Or they're, you know, they have their, but a lot of us are like, sure. We're snobs, y'all. Like that's the thing about theater nerds is we're we're all super snobby. Now he did do his first ever feature was a movie called Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench. That <gasps> was a jazz musical, all in black and white. Ooh. I remember hearing about that and seeing a trailer and was like, oh, this looks interesting. So I, at some point, I do kind of want to track that down because I was like, maybe maybe he did a little better the first time around. That could be really interesting. Look, the guy made Whiplash, so he is a good director. Okay, I do love Whiplash, he is. though. Whiplash is fabulous. It I just, do. That movie, he thought he had something with La La Land, and he didn't. He just didn't. So we can do better, my dude. <sighs> yeah, we can. Yeah. I know you can. Now we will talk about our writing and directing, because it all ties together in the same singular person. It is Jacques Demy, one of the major French New Wave directors. Before this, he made Lola. The Seven Deadly Sins, he was one of seven directors on that, and Bay of Angels. After this, he directs a sequel to this, The Young Girls of Roquefort, Model Shop, Donkey Skin, The Pied Piper, A Slightly Pregnant Man, Lady Oscar, Une Chambre en Vie, Parking, Three Seats for the 26th, and Turning Table. And Lola is a prequel. That is right. This is technically part of a trilogy. There's a scene in which Roland tells Miss Emery he once loved a woman named Lola. In that film, Mark Michel, who plays Roland, plays this same character. Okay. It is a very loose trilogy. The whole idea is just around um, concepts of love and different things. But it is a trilogy around that. Started with Lola, this is the middle film, and Young Girls of Roquefort is the final film. I've only found out about this on about this trilogy thing on, and especially with Lola, like this on this rewatch of it so never knew that have never seen lola but now i'm like oh now i have to see lola weird part is lola straight film just a like french new wavy drama movie young girls of roke for a musical full-on musical mm-hmm. but a different kind of musical than this in fact from what i have heard young girls of roke for is very much akin to what you might see more in a movie in a modern movie musical what do we think of Jacques Demy's writing and directing of this film? I'm very pro. It's, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a beautiful film, like beginning all of the writing, all of the, I mean, from the very first images with the overhead shot of the umbrellas walking through and the rain pouring down, it gives you the color that it tells you like you're in a musical, like, and then this like heightened reality, mm-hmm. but you've also got the moodiness with the rain and it's, and the sort of ordinariness of just people walking through as well. Like, it's just, oh. You feel like you're in a real place mm-hmm. that just so happens to be wildly colorful and people sing all the time. It's almost like we are in a real dollhouse. Oh, yeah. Which, this is something I did say when watching this film, I was like, this is Wes Anderson's aesthetic. Yes. It totally is. I was like, mm-hmm. that's where this came from. 
because I also was like, as I'm watching like the interiors of these rooms, it's like, oh, this is power clashing, like all mm-hmm. these patterns, like, cause they're quite wild and like oh, yeah. the best way. I was like, this is awful, but it's amazing. Oh my God. The hooker room. Oh, fabulous. Love it. <laughs> so good. But I was just like, you know, we're, we're noticing it's like, oh, there's so much from American in Paris that came from this. And like, but like, they're just all coming from a very similar place. And vibe and I was like, oh, this is where Wes Anderson's aesthetic came from. Mm-hmm. And, but it's just like, I feel like we're in a very living dollhouse. And I mean that in the best way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that it's breathing and it's 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 an it's alive. And Jacques Demi is the one playing with the dolls. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or or maybe uh dollhouse isn't great but uh like a a marionette stage Mm -hmm. yeah perhaps but he very much is the the puppet master in that way what's fascinating is that he also from what we're seeing seems to be this benevolent puppet master oh i know he treats all of these characters so sweetly and tenderly with the care that they each would Mm -hmm. get just as normal human beings like they're all so nice and they're all like everybody's made to look beautiful yes. and warm and kind. I mean, and you have Catherine Deneuve who looks like a Barbie doll, like sure. just absolutely like bonkersly beautiful. Mm-hmm. But everybody is treated with such love and care and tenderness in the way that they're written in the like in the way that they're lit and sort of framed. And, you know, everything's very sweet and soft to I even you're in the auto mechanic shop and they're the men are washing their hands and even that feels like that a the really best like employee bathroom area ever. I know it's so good. <laughs> but even that's like you're just like they're so there's something very tender and warm about that and like mm-hmm. friendly and kind. Like even the moment the scene when Guy comes back and he's going through his rough spot, even that is treated with this like yeah, he's kind of being an asshole through all of this, but also like we still love him and we care about him and we want to see him be okay again. Like, like just there's so much love there. It's really, it's just beautiful. It gets you. Well, and I think it it only serves to push the emotional feeling of it, especially to the final climax that we have. Mm-hmm. Like you're not prepared for how much that final moment is going to get you. Because if this were just a simple story, you wouldn't care. It would be a Hallmark movie. <laughs> I mean, really. If you're truly. A little bit of a downer, to be honest, if we're telling this story. It would be it would be a different kind of thing. But still, it would just have that same feeling. But because of the design, because of the way he's framed it, because of the way he's constructed the film and the story, it hits you that much harder. Because mm-hmm. what he's trying to do is, he, is he's really just trying to say normal life is just as emotionally impactful as any grand epic story we could tell. That's the whole point of this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he pulls it off. That's wild to be able to do as a director. It just is. Well, Demi does hide a lot of small details throughout the film, as we've talked about. One of the, one of the most interesting ones is that when you are watching the film at the very beginning, a black car rolls into the garage. That car is Roland Cassard's car. What? That's right. When the the car that comes in at the very beginning is Roland's car. And wow. you see it again when he visits Miss Emery to pay for the necklace and at the wedding. Holy wow. shit. Yep. Oh that my. is 
nut. That's so good. I never knew. I didn't either. Which is why I went, well, I have to go watch it again, David. Yeah. Oh, shoot. <laughs> well, and that car is so iconic in the very last scene. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. that car is the car in the last. But the fact that it's the same one. It... Oh, my God. It's at the very so beginning. Good. Wow. Okay. I, like, I'm just speechless. <laughs> That's subtle, but I like it. It's very good. I like it. Oh, that's my kind of storytelling. Oh, I love that. Oh. And as we as we briefly mentioned earlier, Demi's foresight made sure that this film would last throughout the years. Because this was filmed in Eastman color, which means the color is gorgeous, it takes what's already beautiful color and just makes it soak and saturate even more. But Eastman color rapidly deteriorated on a film negative. So the prints would eventually lose their quality. His original print started to fade. Anytime they screened it, it would fade. So what he did was he took three color separation masters. He got yellow, cyan, and magenta, printed them on black and white negatives. The black and white negatives do not fade like the color ones. In 2004, Agnes Varda, his wife, was brought in to do a 40th anniversary restoration. They took those negatives, remastered them to color, and then put the film back together. And Michelle Legrand was brought in to restore what was then a four-track stereo sound into digital so that it would be able to be preserved. Wow. Mm-hmm. Ten years later, they did another remastering and, and putting together for the 50th anniversary. And that print is the one that's on HBO Max right now. It's the one. And, it, and we see that mentioned at the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. That was supervised by Matthew Demi, Jacques Demi's son, and Rosalie Varda, who was his adopted daughter with Agnes. Right. So they have done a couple of different restorations. But again, he knew that this thing wouldn't last unless he took that. If I take the color, I put it on black and white. We can hold on to it for however long we need until we've got the technology to make sure it doesn't fade. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because the colors of this movie are so fucking important that if I let the original print die, we won't ever be able to use it. No. And he knew from the very beginning that they were going to have to do that. The the things that you hear about this movie and the way that he talks about in, you know, the things that he has said about this movie, you like the color was so important and it wouldn't be the it wouldn't be the movie that it was if it was if it didn't have that super saturated dollhouse quality to it that yeah. it just oh. If we didn't have that... It, if he it, hadn't thought about it, we would have never had this movie. No, we would never see this. This no. wouldn't exist in the universe. It would have been like a lost Doctor Who episode of like the weird... Fr- like, it, it's one of the French new wave films, I think, that, you know, part of the reason it stood the test of time and that people still know it and that you can still make references to it in things like Mad Men and have it like affect little cultural things is because they took such care to make sure that it was going to stay and last. So we're pro Jacques to me. <laughs> yes, very yes. much so. Super much so. Now let's talk about our other writer because let's be honest, there's a whole nother writer involved in this movie. Oh yes, there is. And it's actually our composer. Because the film is sung through, we can't not mention the music for this film. And it is composed by Michel Legrand. Now, Michel Legrand composed on all of Jacques Demy's films, but he also did a number of notable films. And as part of doing this film, got notoriety enough to do a lot of American films and American big things as well. So before this, he scored Godard's A Woman is a Woman, 
Agnes Varda's Clio from 5 to 7, Godard's Viva Savi. After this, he scored Band of Outsiders, The Young Girls of Roquefort, obviously, La Chinoise by the Godard, and then in America, 1968's Sweet November, 1968's The Thomas Crown Affair, oh. Ice Station Zebra, Wuthering Heights in 1970, oh. Le Mans, Brian's Song for Television, Portnoy's Complaint, Lady Sings the Blues, A Doll's House from 1973, F for Fake, 1973's The Three Musketeers, Lovers Like Us, 1977's Gulliver's Travels, Atlantic City, Never Say Never Again. Wait, like as in... The Sean Connery fake Bond movie? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Michelle Legrand was involved in that. Sure, sure, sure. Wow. Yentl. Yentl. Ready to Wear, and 1998's Madeline. Oh, shoot. (laughs) And this is all in, like, movies we would maybe know. He also was continuing to compose all the way until his passing in 2019. Wow. He did tons of scores and Mm -hmm. tons of music for movies. Wow. Okay. (laughs) They're both impressive. They're both really goddamn impressive. I know, right? Yep. You're just like, wow, that's a lot of good stuff. What do we think of his music for this film? Well, I like again haven't heard it in like 20 years and the opening music and that the and I can't and I don't remember the names of any of the themes, but the main theme for the two lovers that plays throughout and is sort of their big the like the closest thing they have to a love ballad. I will wait for you. Yes. Yeah. Is like oh, iconic and like it was one of those that I had forgotten that I knew it as well as I did. I'm like not that I know the song, I just know the tune so well. It's sort of like in, ingrained in the in my brain somewhere, and those like just the opening notes like went, oh shoot. right okay yep this is all coming back all right it's just it's timeless and it's beautiful and yeah (laughs) he doesn't rely on a lot of giant orchestration Mm -mm. either complicated numbers or just like big numbers what he does is especially in that last song there's nothing super grand about it other than he just repeats that phrase again and again and again but swells the orchestra underneath it Mm -hmm. that's where the impact comes in and the other wild thing that people point out that he does is that you'll be in the middle of a pretty emotional song and then we'll make a sharp left turn into a jazz number Mm -hmm. and i mean like a full-on fucking jazz jazz number yeah there's moments where and especially interstitial music where we go straight into like a full jazz combo Mm-hmm. out of nowhere and again it's just throwing you off that beat of you know you just almost thought you were in a normal musical but no fuck it we're back off to jazz arias that's really what it is it's 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 opera by way of jazz <laughs> in a lot of ways kind of yeah i mean and you get he like solidly establishes that jazz bit too in the 
in when we meet Guy for the in the auto mechanic shop, like that conversation that he has with his coworkers and like what are you doing tonight is all very jazzy and like cool and hip and yeah. Mm-hmm. All the rest of Sativ is all done in jazz. Mm-hmm. Any bit of that dialogue. It's when we get to the emotional points that he then slowly brings it into a full number. Yeah. And then drops it back into the same type of scoring and tit for tat and going back and forth with the dialogue. Just the amount of connection you would have. Like the sheet music for this has to be monstrous. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. How to think through how you're going to compose for each of those specific beats. And then you've got to think about the fact that you then have to edit around that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's that makes my brain hurt. Trying, <laughs> trying to imagine singing through this show like is I don't de- uh, learn that. That's the I, part that, hurt, that I hurts don't me. know. Yeah. Um, no. It's been adapted for stage, I will say. I know. Sure. Yeah. It was adapted mostly in the 70s and 80s. I can't believe it was ever that successful because this is one of those rare moments. And part of this is because of the subversion. Another thing that he was trying to do was to make a film that would rival a live experience. Mm-hmm. And it pulls it off because of all the subversion it's doing, because it's doing all the unexpected things. I don't know if you could do that on stage. You probably could if you really, really worked hard at it and mm-hmm. thought through it. But yeah. boy, what it what a weird way you'd have to reconstruct a deconstruction. Yeah, maybe. He's not just a composer. Michel Legrand is integral to the writing of this movie. Mm-hmm. Like he had to compose all of this and put it together and then work with Jacques Demy to get it together because otherwise they couldn't have done those scenes and figured out the editing. You would have to have all of that in place day one. Yeah. So to me, it's, I know that wouldn't be how the credit works, but honestly, if you're, if you would put this up for a screenplay award, you have to put both of them in Mm -hmm. because it just, it just is what it is. They're both writing this story because it's, the music is so integral to what's going on. Makes your brain hurt. Yeah, it does. Like so much. It does. Like thinking about separating, yeah. Like again, <laughs> I've never thought it. I I haven't thought about it that deep before. But like just the idea of like separating the music from the movie is like it, you can't do it. <laughs> I do think one thing does need to happen for this film, though, as part of its restoration. Mm-hmm. People need to go back and redo the subtitles. Oh yeah, because yeah. they are not correct (laughs) so i i get the aim to just be like to give someone the gist of what someone's saying in another language Mm -hmm. and i understand that when you take something from one language to another it may not be exactly the same thing Mm -hmm. which is totally fine but you have to give someone the attitude if you can't give them the exact words, you have to give them the words that convey the attitude so that yeah. when if they only have subtitles, that they get that. I am not a fluent speaker at all in any way, shape or form. I have the skills of like maybe a kindergartner. Maybe mm-hmm. that's on a good day. Same. It pissed me off so much in that hand washing scene in the beginning when he asked, are you going? And the guy replies. Bien sir, which means 
of course. Yeah. And the, and the attitude in which he delivers that is, of course, I'm fucking going, you twit. <laughs> yeah. That's the that's the way that's delivered. And the subtitle says, yes, I'm going. Yeah. Different, different, different. Those mean completely different things. And they could have put, duh. Yeah. And I would have been like, get it. I get it. I get that guy's attitude. I or get just an of course exclamation. Or just of course. Yeah. Even just the actual translation exactly. like translates it. I mean, it yeah. gives the, conveys the meaning better. Yeah. And, what, and well, what's frustrating, too, is the translators would have been picked by a specific team dedicated to exactly. Demi's vision. And I feel like we are now at the perfect time for this type of thing to happen, especially with people being more willing to consume foreign media that has had a more artfully done dub. Yeah. And where they know that very purposeful subtitles have been made so that those inflections, those intents where the language might be different has not been lost with the translation. And I feel like that that needs to happen because I, I know there are things that I am missing because I don't have the best grasp of the language. Same. And I want it. I want it so <laughs> bad. Yeah. Like, Come on. We're coming up on the 60th anniversary. Do it. New subtitles. New subtitles. Matthew and Rosalie, just do a translation. Everything is mm-hmm. great. The restoration is great. Sure. Just rework the translation, work together from the script, because I do understand being very judicious in what sure. you decide to translate. That's part of mm-hmm, the art of, of it. Yeah. But take another pass at it. Please. And I'm and I'm not asking for updated modern language. I'm asking right. for give me the intent behind what you're saying in your your language. A full faithful translation. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's my one critique when it comes to like how we experience this film mm-hmm. like give me give me this and it's not even with the filmmaker i'm not even mad at them no <laughs> it's it's a thing of like again going back to something like a godar when you're watching that and you're just seeing like all sorts of weird shit going on on screen you don't really care no. like mm-hmm. the dialogue is not the point but because this movie is so subtle, it's sure. so about the details. It's so about the little. Things. I know those things matter. That's integral to part of experiencing the movie. Yeah, it matters to me. And it would make some moments which can feel a little wooden stiff probably pop probably that add. much more. Sure. Yeah. Let's talk about. We only have two main cast members. Sure that do. We can really talk about. Sure. There are a handful of Arpons, but. We start with then 19-year-old mm-hmm. Catherine Deneuve playing Genevieve Emery. Uh, she is one of the hugest stars of French cinema. This was the first internationally seen role for her. She, mm. had, she had done a handful of films that were big in France, but this really broke her as an international star and led to her doing you know, a handful of other international movies and then into some American movies, as we'll talk about. So before this, she was in The Twilight Girls, The Door Slams, and Vice and Virtue. After this, Repulsion, The Young Girls of Roquefort, Belle du Jour, The April Fools, Mississippi Mermaid, Tristana, Un Flic, Hustle, The Last Metro, The Hunger, My Favorite Season, East West, The Musketeer, Eight Women, Persepolis. Eight women. And she is still going strong and making movies today. 
All right. What do we think of Catherine Deneuve in this movie? First of all, I love, I just want to give a huge shout out to Eight Women. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, speaking of move, French movie musicals, mm-hmm. I also watched, for me, Umbrellas of Cherbourg and Eight Women are inextricably linked because of Catherine Deneuve, but mm-hmm. also because they're French movie musicals. I was also watching them at the same time because Eight Women came out when I was in high school taking French. <laughs> so like you know looking back on it like much of 2000s dark comedies especially like there's some really problematic content in it but like they got the fucking who's who of french actresses at the time <laughs> isabelle Huppert's in it emmanuel beret fanny arden and catherine deneuve and it's like it is clue mixed with like this it, it, it's essentially like candy colored clue with music um, it's great. It's awesome. Okay. I highly recommend it. But yeah, Kath, I, I'm a huge fan of Catherine Deneuve and like, which as a little redheaded girl growing up, like who was like not into blonde actresses at all because they I didn't look like them. And I was like, everybody's blonde and whatever. There's just sure. something like ethereal and angelic about her that is just she is the doll in the dollhouse. It's fascinating, too, because then a lot of her roles were directly playing against that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Many of her roles were. Now let's take that and show just how sexy or manipulative she could be. Oh, sure. Because she's a femme fatale in a lot of ways and a lot of roles that she has. Well, and like older Catherine Enev, still amazingly beautiful and gorgeous yes. and like ridiculous out of this world. She plays sort of the matriarch in Eight Women and is like very different kind of character. <laughs> I think what's really great about what she's doing is that she she has the look so she knows that she can really just deliver the line in the moment if that's what the moment calls for mm-hmm. to be that doll but there are moments where she just really dives into the role and mm-hmm. the emotion of it and when it happens it's weird because you know we just talked about West Side Story and we're like well Natalie Wood is really hard to watch until she gets that emotional mm-hmm. and then you're like oh yeah that's right this is a movie star right in this movie, it's the opposite because they're subverting this stuff. So she's just this doll until she emotes. And then all of a sudden, bam, it hits you like a ton of bricks mm-hmm. because you've already been conditioned not to look for it. <laughs> I mean, I don't have anything to add. Y'all <laughs> showered her with compliments. I just I enjoyed her a lot. And I thought I might get annoyed with her at a certain point for being like the forlorn teenager. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I didn't. No. It didn't go too far. I wish I wish we saw her smile a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. I, just a little bit. Like, even if it was only with Gee. But. Because nah. when she smiles, the few times that she does, it's like breathtaking. Yeah, because I would have been fine if she was only smiling with Gee. Mm-hmm. It's not a bit fine. I don't understand yeah. it. Or or only like starts to smile when she's thinking about him. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, subsequently when it's about her daughter. But, you know, that's a minor quibble. <laughs> mm-hmm. We also have Nino Castelnuovo playing Guy Fouché. Before this, he was in Rocco and His Brothers. After this, he was in a film called The Creatures, which was a big deal. And then lots of just Italian stuff. A lot of real schlocky Italian B and C movies. But he also had a very notable role in The English Patient. That's right. I forgot about that. I've still never seen that movie. I haven't either, but like that's one of those little pieces of like, you know, high school, high school lady dame looks up like all of the actors and all of the movies that she loves and like, where are 
they now? What are they doing? <laughs> yeah. What do we think of Nino Castelnuovo in this movie? Other than the fact that he's ridiculously hot. <laughs> he's very attractive. They cast him very well. I know. <laughs> he's like real cute. Like just mm-hmm. real hot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's right. It's not just hot. It's cute. Mm-hmm. He's also very cute and adorable. Mm-hmm. That's part of it. <laughs> Some of this with the acting is it's very much just like, well, these are just French New Wave actors. I, I think the biggest thing about the the best actors of this style was they were all willing to just be like, okay, this is what this movie does. Cool. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. Like we're watching Band of Outsiders. Oh, we're just going to be super snarky and sarcastic and like wink at the camera every five seconds. Cool. Oh, we're in a dollhouse. We're in this weird sort of, we know it's fake, but also we're very real and grounded type thing. Cool. Let's just roll with it and see how it goes. It's real hard to to point to the specific great ability of a French New Wave actor because it's just like, they're just game to do whatever the director asks them to do. I think it's interesting because you brought up West Side Story. Like he definitely, like he wouldn't be out of place in West Side Story. Like if you had put, his like gi this this actor in that story like it would have felt he feels like one of those guys in that like kind of charming and like rakish but like ultimately just with the heart of gold and you're like you're like just bad enough but still safe mm-hmm. he's a better tony than tony yes correct yeah. and he does exactly it's just it's like perfect it's like this is exactly what you want from this like archetype of this character is like it's a well-worn archetype for and yeah like it just he does it well and he's real pretty to look at where he really does get to shine is when he comes back from the war in algeria that's when his acting really gets to pop because for a lot of that time it really is you're just like well you got this big story going on right and and it's just this whole thing but when he comes back that's when you realize okay now he's really into this character because it's like he went to fucking war and it was brutal. Like mm-hmm. that was those wars were not that would wreck you. <laughs> so like he's in it and you can see he's in it. And then he's coming out the other side with Madeline finding something good and stable and happy. <laughs> and and just oh, it kills you when he when he delivers that line. Do you want to see her? No. Ugh. It's just devastating, but beautiful because you're like, yeah, I I don't want to be reminded of that. I Mm -hmm. I just I'm happy to move on. He made his choice. Mm -hmm. Like, I I love that because today it would be like, well, of course. But like also today, if the story was written today, he would have come back and been like, no, that's my daughter. And you're not like she's going to be in my like there there would have been none of this. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, no, I don't. I'm yeah. not going to upset my life or her life. Yep. I'm glad she's happy, but I have my son and my family. <laughs> There's a part of it that's sad, but also like everyone's OK. Yeah. Like Again, there's no drama there. Yeah. It's just, just like, it I, like I, I, it's sad that like he does not have his daughter in his life, but like. She has a father. Yeah. Like, like there's there's not an absence in no. someone's life here. Like <laughs> she's playing when she's playing with the snow. It's like, oh yeah, this is very clearly a happy well. Like everyone's okay. Child. Yeah. Everyone's okay. Mm-hmm. The sadness is based on what could what, have been. What could have been, 
and the love that we had. Yeah. The sadness is not based on any real tragedy. The tragedy is just the tragedy that we all feel every day when we we get wistful about the past. Yeah. <laughs> like it just is Nostalgia. and it happens. <laughs> Back to the actor though. When I think one one of the things that I was just thinking about is that like one of the things he does really well and especially with these like as you were saying these are probably these are pretty small budgets. Like they they don't even bother to change his hair at all in between the you know when we first meet Guy versus when he comes back now as a cosmetol like person who has gone through cosmetology school I notice school I notice haircuts like they they didn't change a dang thing about him but still he feels that two years older mm-hmm. he's got like a five o'clock shadow and that's right. it right and it's like because it's not like they're giving them hair pieces or anything like that yeah. so and just the way that he carries himself is not the like kind of like doofy like bubbly geek that we see in the first in the first part of it we definitely see like in a sort of older sadder and it's only two years and so that's kind of that he's lost that spark that made him what he what he is or that that made him you know Genevieve's suitor some of that's also context I mean you're sure because because this is 64 and we're telling it starting in 57, the audience mm-hmm. knows about the wars in Algiers. Mm-hmm. So they know about like just how brutal that that whole conflict was. Sure. So they have that going in. But even then, like you say, the acting sells it mm-hmm. because it sells he's come back and he's not the same guy. <laughs> and he's clearly not doing okay. Yeah. yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah. All right, well... Let me let me break your heart some more with some R puns. First of all, we will mention Marc Michel playing Roland Cassard because, again, he was in the earlier film of Lola. All the rest of our main actors, I got to say, there wasn't a whole lot about them. Mm-mm. Even Miss Emery. And she's so good in this movie. Big in France. Yeah. But nothing in America not, or nothing big and notable that, that we've typically seen. Okay. Now let's talk about the family members who are in this movie. Michelle Legrand's sister, Christiane Legrand, is the singing voice for Madame Emery. Oh. Jacques Demy does the singing voice for La Cliente Agarre and Le Seveux. Michelle Legrand is the singing voice of Jean, one of the mechanics in the shop. And now, let me really break your heart. Because playing Francois and Francoise are Hervé Legrand, the son of Michelle Legrand, and Rosalie Varda. Jacques Demy's adoptive daughter from Agnes Varda. That's right. (laughs) That's so cute. Those kiddos are in that scene. That's cute. That's how you know it's a low budget. (laughs) Oh yeah. No, no. It's it's all their family and friends being in the movie. Like they're just like, we're going on vacation to Cherbourg. We're gonna film for like a couple of weeks and we're gonna make something, okay? Oh, that's so sweet, though. I mean, it helps that Jacques Demy was married to Agnes Varda, and they're both kooky, wild French New Wave directors, so, like, shit's gonna happen. (laughs) (laughs) Just that, along with, you know, the emotional impact of that scene just makes me go, oh, damn. Oh, damn. (laughs) Cute. And, of course, Rosalie was part of the 2013 restoration, but Hervé Legrand has actually composed for a few films himself. Nothing super notable, but he has, he has continued composing, just mm-hmm. like his father. Let's talk about awards. It was nominated for five Oscars, actually. Wow. Over two separate ceremonies. In 1965, 
it was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. Sure. Then in 1966, it got four nominations. It was nominated for Best Original Screenplay. It lost to a film that we just heard about when we went to go see Last Night in Soho, Edgar Wright mentioning Darling, the 1965 film. Okay. Won Best Original Screenplay that year. Huh. Best Original Song, it was nominated for I Will Wait For You. It lost to a song I've never heard of in my life. I don't mm-hmm. know. But it was up against What's New Pussycat that year. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Which, hey, banger. Banger. Different kind banger. of banger. Bang- totally banger. Very different. Yeah. Still a banger. It was nominated for Best Substantially Original Score. I don't know what that means, but it's a, it's a term they were using in the mid-60s. It lost to Maurice Jarre's score for Dr. Zhivago. So uh, nothing to well, sneeze at. Okay, super valid, though. Like, Fair. Those are beautiful. You know? And it was nominated for Best Music Scoring Adaptation or Treatment. It lost to Erwin Kostel's adaptation of The Sound of Music. Oh, well, okay, I suppose. <laughs> so, um, sure. It went, that Sound of Music, man. Just a little bit. But this film, this film did just fine because it is the winner of the 1964 Palm d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. Shit. That's awesome. Yes. Yeah, I think it's fine. The award it most definitely could have won and made a huge impact, it won. Mm-hmm. Good. And you can't deny it. It's it's like Rocky winning the Oscars in 76. Yeah. You know, the the Palm d'Or even back in the 50s and 60s, they could go for some really edgy stuff. Mm-hmm. And people were making edgy stuff. This is a movie that is edgy, but in such a subtle way, and it's telling an uplifting story. And people love an uplifting story, and especially when you do it in a novel way. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of the best reasons why this stands the test of time, for sure, mm-hmm. from an award standpoint. That leaves me with only really one extra piece of trivia, and that is that at 13 Rue de Port in Cherbourg, marked with a commemorative plaque, you can still find the Umbrella Shop. I want to go to there. I need a plaid If you're ever in France, you must go to Cherbourg so you can go see all of the wonderful, beautiful sights. I, mean, I need the parpluie from Cherbourg. I will say, like, all of the colors and stuff are magnificent, but it wasn't all just him. Like, I believe part of the inspiration is that the village of Cherbourg is just that colorful. That's uh, a big part of it. I mean, Paris can be that way, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Part of him wanting to do this is because of that village. Sure. I've seen towns that are pretty darn cute. So actually, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. I mean, Europe, Europe, I mean, we set so many things there because it mm-hmm. is charming and beautiful and USA sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I have toured we a have lot. our moments. All right. Like there are some very I want to say like the Ozark Mountain Folk Center is really cute. <laughs> I was going to say Fort Collins, Colorado, adorable, mm-hmm. like super cute. We're just not as cute as France. No, well, we're not as cute as France. They've been around a whole lot longer. <laughs> They've had more time to be cute. They figured it out. Also, they have the wine and cheese. They do. They and do. the art. <laughs> yeah. And that leads us to our ratings of course, for every film, we have a special rating system. Oh, come on. How it's do we Parapluies! Huh, I wonder how many... Parapluies. Parapluies. How many parapluies. 
I will start. I can't give this movie a perfect score, but the only reason, hold on, the only reason why I'm not going a full perfect score is because I need to watch it more. Because I didn't, because gut reaction to this movie initially is I'm not, I, I, I haven't gotten the full connective thread. And at times, there are moments where I'm like, I don't, huh? I don't get it. What? <sighs> the looks you have given me have made me change my mind, Diana. It's five. <laughs> I feel like I've rubbed off on you too much. It's five. It's a fucking five, David. Five, five paraplouis. Five paraplouis. So here's it's the deal. Five, David. The more I watch five. it, the more I watch it, I'm going to wind up giving it six paraplouis. I guarantee. Fucking five. Because I'll, 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 I'll be like, you know what? It's better than perfect because of how much stuff I missed the first time. Mm-hmm. Five. I only complain has nothing to do with the movie itself. Yeah. yeah. How often does that happen? How often do I not complain about a movie? I'm gonna take it. I'm gonna take it. You're giving this a five, Diana. We. Oui. <laughs> I was going to say um parska, and only because I really like baby lady dame hated hated the low ponytail over the ears. Fair. Where the hair kit covered the ears. Fair. Like, I was like, so how dare you do that to Catherine Deneuve and her beautiful, beautiful face? And now she looks like, mm, um, at, like making her face look super long and sad. And I get why they did it. I'm kidding. It's it's Saint Pepperie, obviously. <laughs> Saint Pepperie for the film. It's it's just, it's so just fucking good. <laughs> like and like I said, 20 years down the road since the last time I saw it, and it's just like. It's better. And it like, holds up. It like it's better than I remembered. Here's the here's the thing for anybody who's never seen it and watches it because of this. Just know the first time you see it, you're gonna be kind of baffled for a little bit. Yes, correct. It's gonna throw you the fuck off. You gotta just sort of ride with it for a little bit, and it'll click. It will. Mm-hmm. But it is weird to start. It definitely takes at least two full watches, and like give yourself space in between watching them. Oh, take some time. Yeah. And, you know, drink some wine. It's worth it. Well, Lady Dame, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about this beautiful, magnificent film. Thank you for having me. (laughs) If people want to find more of you on the wide, wide interwebs, where could they find you? That's an excellent question. Pretty much anywhere on social media at the Lady Dame is where one can find me. I talk a lot about a lot of different stuff on Twitter. Soon I'll be mostly shouting about theater because, hey, theater's reopening. Yay. Yay! Um, yay! Hooray. Uh, but I am a, as brought up earlier, I'm a TTRPG content creator, Twitch streamer, storyteller. Um, I am the host of a show called Smutty Saturday on my Twitch channel, which is every Saturday night at 9 p.m. Pacific on twitch.tv slash the lady dame, where I am joined by a myriad of amazing people from across the streamer community and we get together and read smutty fan fiction chuck dingle and you know stories about smooching monsters it's uh <laughs> it's a good time yeah we just celebrated our one-year anniversary uh, dramatic reading of the classic piece of fan fiction known as my immortal I had a cast of 15 for that. It was great fun. Um, so yeah, I also play a variety of video games and sometimes I'll read stories on my Twitch channel. Hopefully I'll be starting back up with that soon. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm around. All very cool. But before we go, we saw some new movies. Mm-hmm.
we saw the French Dispatch. A love letter to journalists set in an outpost of an American newspaper in a fictional 20th century French city that brings life to a collection of stories published in the French Dispatch magazine. This was delightful. We should say the full title is The French Dispatch of the Liberty City, Kansas Evening Sun. Mm-hmm. Bless. Yeah, this was this was delightful. I really, especially having watched the other Wes Anderson films, <laughs> uh, which was great. So I was perfectly primed for this. I really enjoyed this. It's definitely one of his better films. I mean, I, I really enjoy it. I do think somebody put the quote of like, it doesn't quite have as much heart as some of his other movies. And I would agree a little bit. It's a sure. little bit more of a distance. It's a little more precious. Mm-hmm. If <laughs> if you can say that about Wes fucking Anderson. See, I wouldn't say it's more precious. It's a little more detached. Well, there there is a detachment. I don't think this is as much his story. It's not. But what I will say is even with that, he did the separate story thing. But he strung them together better than I had seen him do before. He had framework really well established. I was reading some stuff and like all of these stories are very fantastical versions of real New Yorker stories mm-hmm. that he's pulling bits and pieces from. Sure. Because that ultimately is this movie. It's yeah. it's him declaring his love for the New Yorker and the Paris Review and all of the, mm-hmm. the sort of high tone literary writing uh, and criticism. Sure. But fucking the second they called the town Ennui sur Blase, I was fucking in. <laughs> which which is essentially this on the uh as I said, literally translated boredom upon apathy. <laughs> I, like those those aren't really French words, but they're based in French. But that's essentially what they mean. On the. <laughs> he's seriously making fun of French cinema. As much as he's in love with it. Sure. And he's doing it constantly in this movie. Because for the first time, he's really setting it there. He he is. And he used a lot of those techniques. And we got to see this at the Alamo, which was really fun. And they had amazing pre-show entertainment that really kind of showed us some of the things that were pulled, that were the inspiration for what they did, which was just great which was really fun it's it's a thing of he has always always been inspired by the french new wave sure everything he's done but in this movie it's very much his like full fuck it we're going all in he went all in on it with his style um with some of the filmmaking techniques which was really well done it's beautiful i only had one real complaint in it and that was with Timothy Chalamet, and it wasn't with him. It was that they never had him speak French. And Timothy yeah. Chalamet is fluent in French. Mm-hmm. Like, we love to see uh, him in interviews with French speakers, where he will go on and on and on, because that's just very unusual. And he is playing a character in France, and he is ne- he never speaks French. And especially in the story they're telling, there was a a big opportunity. Yes, there was there. It could have been used so well. And I'm like, culturally, we know that Timothy Chalamet, his fucking name is French. He speaks French. You did not have him speak French at any point in the show. And it could have been used as a really effective storytelling device. Yes. And that was a missed opportunity. It was. And like, I understand not wanting to be gimmicky with it, but also like, 
he's he learned Italian for call me by your name. He's good with languages. Let him do it. Like it's a it's it's a gift of your actor. So like do it. On the flip side, what I also really love are we get some really fun, surprising performances from people. Yes. Uh, Lea Seydoux mm. gives a wonderfully surprising performance. Yes. Uh, Benicio Del Toro doing some of what he always does, but in a fun way with a little twist. And really the shining one, if it gets any acting nominations, and I don't think it will based on the strength of the categories, but if any one person deserves it, it's Jeffrey Wright, who really gives a magnificent performance in his story. He, he has a beautiful story. Yes. I love his story. And then Bill Murray is perfect in this. So, I mean, he's perfect. Barely in the movie, but he is perfect. But his role is the cherry on the Sunday mm-hmm. in every scene. And this really, like, I mean, I loved Grand Budapest and it was so fun and it was so charming and playful and an adventure. And this film is not an adventure, but it has all of those notes. And so it's a very different film, but it still feels like a Wes Anderson film, which is great. It's just really good. And like, it, it's probably not the best of the year, but it's a fun movie that's both a love letter and also sure. really, really willing to make fun of France as a concept. Next, we saw Last Night in Soho. An aspiring fashion designer is mysteriously able to enter the 1960s, where she encounters a dazzling wannabe singer. But the glamour is not all it appears to be, and the dreams of the past start to crack and splinter into something darker. This film was really good. What a rad movie. This this movie is awesome. It will have you singing downtown a lot, but it's a great song. <laughs> it's Edgar Wright and someone else, which I heard, I saw some criticism about about this story being written by a man, but it wasn't only written by a man. So it was co-written with a woman. <laughs> this story, there's a story. This is a story about violence against a woman. So you do need to know that going into it. But there's such a twist and an examination of it that is so interesting. This is the most complete movie since probably Shaun of the Dead mm-hmm. that I've seen Edgar Wright do. It's not to say that Edgar Wright isn't a great director. Sure. He's magnificent. And he's he is what we wished Quentin Tarantino could eventually turn into. Yeah. Because Edgar does the magic, does the extra step of pulling all these references from cinema, but then finding a way to ground it in a little more humanity than Quentin ever did. But in all of his other movies, there's always a little bit of it that feels a little mushy. Baby Driver is probably the biggest example of this. I just looked it up. So Edgar Wright did the story. Christy Wilson Cairns did the screenplay. And she also wrote 1917. So. And that movie slaps. So. Yeah. It, it needed other perspectives mm-hmm. for this to really work. This movie, though, he takes all those references mm-hmm. and he really reigns it in because he's clearly pulling from a British horror tradition Mm -hmm. that is very restrained there's kind of two british horror scenes one of them is weird and quirky and a little b-movie but the other is very much psychological Mm -hmm. british horror you know at its best has always been about what's going on in the mind and he just goes right for that it's just it's just good it's good and i was surprised by what happens in this movie in a good way. Also, Thomason McKenzie 
fucking awesome. Fucking awesome. I mean, we already knew Anya Taylor-Joy and Matt Smith were great. And they are great in this film. But Thomas and Mackenzie is fabulous. And then also, this is the last film of the formidable Diana Riggs. So love her. Love that bitch. She's the best. Love her. So next we saw Eternals. The saga of the Eternals, a race of immortal beings who lived on Earth and shaped its history and civilizations. A Marvel film. Pretty much. There were so many things about this film that I liked. It's not a perfect film. I'm not going to pretend that it is. It's kind of like, okay, thank you for introducing all these people. I need more. This film would have been better as like a four-part miniseries on Disney+. Plus. It is interesting. I think both of us, you know, we, we talked about it a little bit. We have different feelings on why we didn't think it worked. Sure. And I think everybody will probably have a little bit of a different reason. Ultimately, this movie, it really does just leave you with the feeling of, okay, well, I sat and I watched a movie for two and a half hours. Don't feel bad. Don't feel good. Just feel like I watched a movie. I know this, and this is just one of the things I just have to, ex- you have to accept about some of these films in this Marvel Cinematic Universe. Because some of them just work this way. This film serves a purpose of setting up a lot of things. Yeah. And that's where we're at, where we have to set up a lot of new things. And that's okay. I do believe that this story might have been served better as like a four-part miniseries. But you know what? When the other things come out that point back to this as the as the origin point for our eyes, and I'm going to go back and see this and be like, oh, yeah, there that is. There that is. And then I'll I'll like it more on its own. It's kind of like, okay, I like all the people you introduced me to and I enjoyed my time with you. It could have been more fun. I think we had the wrong director for this story. It's beautiful. I ain't gonna, I'm not like, Chloe Zhao, you make gorgeous films. I think she's the wrong person for this vibe. I think there are too many people she needed to talk to for this movie. And see, to me, I think it's the opposite. I think the story is very flat. Oh, I don't think so. And I think the directing plays into that as well. The whole movie as a whole feels just very flat. It doesn't feel dynamic. Some of that is in choices that were made, directing-wise and acting-wise, but some of that is in the story. Um, One thing that I I tend to agree with after seeing this, and not everybody will, but somebody Mm -hmm. said, I would have really loved this story if it wasn't tied to Marvel because of all the possibilities that you could play off with this just as its own standalone idea and story. Mm -hmm. I do think, especially with this one, for me, I went, if this wasn't tied to the MCU, there are so many fun things you could do with this. Sure. I understand that that's not the case. That's not the situation with this movie and you're setting certain things up. But to me, you still had an opportunity one way or another to make this feel a little more dynamic. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't. It's fine. You you won't hate it, but it, it doesn't live up to some of the other movies that we've seen out of Marvel recently. Next, we saw Spencer. During her Christmas holidays with the royal family at the Sandringham Estate in Norfolk, England, Diana Spencer, struggling with mental health problems, decides to end her decade-long marriage to Prince Charles. So some, some thoughts. Mm-hmm. First of all, this movie starts off with a title screen that says, A Fable Based on a True Tragedy. Which is the exact appropriate way to present what you're about to see. Yes. I will say that I did a little bit of reading 
mm-hmm. about Diana's history with mental illness. Mm-hmm. She has specifically spoken about struggling with bulimia and self-harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had it in interviews in the mid-90s after divorcing Charles and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. She also explicitly says in those interviews that she believed those struggles stemmed from her marriage. Yes. And the scrutiny of that marriage. The story and the directing of this movie. The directing of this movie, one, the visuals are stunning, gorgeous. It is a beautiful movie. But they missed that point. Mm-hmm. They totally missed the point of the pressure that she is under. The whole reason we saw this film was for Kristen Stewart. And not and not because we're like big Kristen Stewart fans, but because of the talk about her performance and just knowing that this is Oscar bait. So we're like, okay, let's go see it. And it lives up to the hype. Lives up to the hype. It's great. It's also going to get a ton of um, costume consideration, which it also deserves. Uh, which it's not all historically accurate, which is not the point of this film. No. This film relies heavily on you understanding the royal family and the royal family dynamics of Princess Diana, which thanks to the crown, a lot of people do. And thanks to all of the drama of what's going on in the royal family right now with Harry and Meghan, they do. If you don't pay attention to any of that stuff and you don't care, you don't know shit about fuck. My name is Diana after this fucking woman. That's who (laughs) I'm named for. I have been surrounded by princess diana information my entire life my mother was obsessed because it was the circus that was happening and my mom was obsessed with it and then i'm named after her and great she's a lovely woman i'm not ashamed to have been named after her at all but this film makes it all about her mental state without really focusing on how everyone in that family contributed to this and then it just kind of as an afterthought lets you know that the the servants and the staff did care about her. They're still beholden to the crown and what the family requires, but they cared about her and they still wanted her to be okay. But we never see that. And so one of the issues that I really took with it is that we knew the things like you go into it knowing that shit with her and Charles was crap. You knew that he's an asshole. The end. She loved her children. That was the most important thing. Those are the best scenes in the entire movie is her with her children because you get the sense of like, that's her lifeline is her children. Yes. And it's precious and also heartbreaking. But we don't see her interaction with Philip. We don't see her interaction with Anne, with you know the other siblings. There's a dinner scene where you can see a woman, an actress, who's clearly Sarah Ferguson, Fergie, who was her sister-in-law for a period of time. Where's her interaction with her? Because she also had her own drama. Where's the scene with them? Where's the interaction with them both kind of commiserating over that? Where is just us seeing how she feels in those rooms with those people? Because it doesn't exist in this film. And it relies heavily on us having too much context. So cubic rule, you need context (laughs) for your movie. For us to understand your movie, your movie sucks. I mean, I I wouldn't call this a terrible film i would call it a flawed film it's a flawed it's not a terrible film you can still enjoy it but it it's it relies on you to know a lot it does and for me i don't even know that it needs that but what i don't what you don't feel is the horror movie tension of all of the eyes watching her Mm -hmm. they did not strike the right balance they spent so much time where you feel like you are in her head instead of focusing the time 
on her feeling all of that pressure. If that tension had been there and you treated this less like a sort of breakdown and Mm -hmm. this sort of tragic, beautiful breakdown and far more as a kind of horror movie, even though it's, it's mostly in her mind. Yes. Those scenes that we have, those would mean so much more. Yes. Because you would understand that pressure and tension and pain and then Mm -hmm. have even more catharsis at the end when Mm -hmm. she finally leaves. Like, it doesn't have to be a true story. It can be this sort of high tragedy retelling of it, but you've got to have that part of it there, and it's not. So, yeah. See it for Kristen Stewart. She's fucking phenomenal. She is fabulous, so. And realize it's not real. It's just a, an attempt to try to think through that story. Mm-hmm. And last we saw Belfast. A young boy and his working class family experienced the tumultuous late 1960s. What a terrible synopsis. That's a horrible synopsis for this film. This is <laughs> Kenneth Branagh's film that he wrote and directed. And it's also his story. It's the story of his experience as a child. And this is a lovely film. It's not overly, it's not preachy. It's very much, this is the thing that happened. It's not treading any new ground. No. I think a lot of critics really love it because it's just so sort of down to earth. Mm -hmm. Our young actor playing the lead is phenomenal. He's so good. He's really good. It's just that you have a cast full of Northern Irish people, excepting Judy Dench. I believe she's British. Yeah. The reason why saying the tumultuous 1960s is wrong is that it's very specifically a story about Northern Ireland. Yeah. (laughs) Which was in tumult. Like, don't get me wrong. The late 1960s were, you know, crazy for a lot of places. But specifically, there was a civil fucking war in Ireland. Sure. Well, and I just... It's just presented like this is a th- this is just a thing that happened, which for this story, for this family, it was. This was our experience. And it just made me think, and I've said this a couple of times that people have talked to about this movie, is like, this is the type of film that our children are likely to make about this time in our lives. The pandemic, the political discourse, like this is likely to be the type of film that they may make because this is what happened. I do like that Brenna is a little playful with how he's filming, how he decides to show certain scenes. Yes. He can get a little fantastical. And that's because explicitly he understands I'm telling this through the lens of a child. Yes. So he very specifically chooses to mm-hmm. direct it in that way at some moments. Yes. But he never he never lets it fly off the rails and he never lets it get overly sentimental it's it's never saccharine like i don't feel like oh this is cheesy or like this isn't this isn't how this would have happened but like there are moments where like the child's being overly dramatic about something because they're a child and they would be overly dramatic about this thing mm-hmm. but then it's also like there's a moment where like in another movie they might have been like you had a little too much like showboating like romantically with the parents but it's like when in a child's eyes that's what it would feel like. Yeah. So it was beautiful and cute and appropriate. So like it's a really it's a really good movie. I don't think it's going to make a huge splash in award season. It'll probably do well at BAFTAs. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I was going they love Kenneth like and yeah. he's fabulous. I think his script will 
script maybe and maybe cinematography because they're really loving the black and white stuff making a comeback so we'll see acting wise if anybody's getting nominated i feel like it's karen hines i feel like for supporting actor he's probably getting that nod because of he plays the grandpa and he's he he is but just everybody's doing a great job of being grounded and Mm -hmm. feeling real even even the mom and dad character you get to see their flaws like they're not perfect and they fight and they're angry but they're also sweet and they love each other and it's just like this is and just they're like in a fucking civil war so of course it's going to get tense like like this is just fucking life it's a really it's a really beautiful movie it's worth seeing it's good it's a good one that's a lot of movies we saw a lot of movies it's our time it's our time for movies there's also a fuck ton more movies coming. Oh my god, yeah, we have a lot. We're 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 very busy. Thank like streaming is actually making it easier because we can knock some out at home. Oh, thank god. Yeah. So, until next time, have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.